Today I have a special episode of Founders Talk for you. This episode is special because it features the founder and CEO of my favorite bike brand, Adam Miller, creator of Revel Bikes. Yes, that's right. I'm talking to a founder of a bike brand, not necessarily a tech brand. But let me tell you, I wouldn't have Adam on the show to share his story if it wasn't worth it for you. Adam's journey to create Revel Bikes is paved with many ups and many downs, failed partnerships, super scrappy weeks and months, traveling the world to find the best manufacturing partners, the latest innovations in suspension tech and modern geometry to hit the mountain biking scene, a strong team that's been with him every step of the way, many of which are as close as family and truly some of the best premium bikes available on the market today. I should know, I'm an owner of a Revel bike. I have a T1000 colored Rascal that I've ridden on downhill trails, all day epics, and everything in between. And I love the bike. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know in the comments. The link is in the show notes. For my new listeners out there, head to founderstalk.fm to subscribe. And for my longtime listeners, thanks for coming back and thank you for listening. Big thanks to our friends and partners at Fastly. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at WorkOS. When it comes to adding enterprise-ready features or selling to enterprise customers, product teams, engineering departments, developers, they're all faced with a choice to ignore and focus on viable features or get distracted and learn how to integrate with complex legacy systems. And I'm here with Michael Greenwich, the founder and CEO of WorkOS, who knows there's a better way. Michael, what do teams at Vercel or PlanetScale know about the world of enterprise features that no one else knows? The world of enterprise features is full of acronyms. Typically, they're like these three or four letter acronyms like SAML, or SKIM, or SEAM. It's like Secure Event Information Event Management. There are these long, kind of like really obscure acronyms that most developers aren't familiar with, they've never really heard of. And this is what IT admins require you to build integrations around. They say, hey, we need SAML, or we have to have a SKIM integration, et cetera. And for companies like, you know, PlanetScale or Vercel that are building on really modern stacks, building with React and like, you know, cutting edge JavaScript technology and like web applications, they're really having to go integrate with these old legacy platforms and systems like SAMLs built around like XML several generations before. And so I think when those companies looked at what to do in this scenario, they have deals that are getting blocked because they don't have something like SAML single sign on. And their engineering team is like, do we really want to spend all the time to go read the spec and learn how this works? and dive into all the different ways this can break. And in the case of SAML, there's a bunch of instances of security of vulnerabilities that have happened over the years. Do they really want to spend time on that? Or, or do they want to spend time building you know, the unique features that power for sell, you know, like focusing on Next.js and focusing on those applications. And for these companies, they, they don't. They don't want to spend the time thinking about SAML. They want to be able to hand it off to someone who can really go deep in that and obsess over it. And so we're sort of like, you know, the, the, the partners to all these companies that goes really, really deep around, you know, these acronyms or obscure technologies, making sure they don't just work really well, but they work everywhere with every single system. And we've tested it end to end. And it even has this kind of compounding effect. The more people using WorkOS kind of the more stable and more robust it becomes. And what it really does is lets companies like Vercel or PlanetScale or Hopin or Webflow focus on those product features and for their best engineers to spend time still delighting their customers and not necessarily doing these uh, enterprise IT integrations. That's awesome. Thank you, Michael. So even if your team isn't focused on enterprise, you can still leverage WorkOS so you're not turning enterprise away. Learn more. Get started at WorkOS.com. They have a simple pay-as-you-grow pricing plan that scales with your usage and needs. No credit card is required. Again, WorkOS.com. 
Adam Miller. Welcome to Founders Talk. Hey, you know, in the pre-call and emails and whatnot, I've mentioned I'm a big Revel fan. I own a Revel Rascal. I love it. And uh, I've been waiting for the time to get you on the show because I'm such a fan. And so you're finally here. So welcome. I'm honored to be here. This is fantastic. This is a different show than I think you'd typically be on. You'd be on like the Worldwide Cycler podcast or their YouTube channel or some other mountain bike specific content creators, podcast, YouTube channel, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Because our focus here at Changelog is definitely on software developers, software engineering, and the direction of businesses in that space. So this may be a semi-departure, but I hope not, because I think there's a lot of inspiration behind the road I think you've been on and the road I think you'll share to build this bike brand. But when you share your story, Revel, of course, is where you're at now, but that's not where you begin. Where do you, when you tell your story, do you go all the way back to eBay? Where do you begin to sort of share your curiosity for entrepreneurship, business, and bikes? Like, how did that intersection come together for you? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm happy to start from the very beginning. And um, I've done, you know, several other podcasts, but very much focused on the bicycle world and more about bikes, and not about the business side of things. And so I'm really glad to be here and, and talk more with a, a bit of, of a business focus. I sometimes joke that, you know, bikes and business are two separate things. Yeah. A lot of people go ride their mountain bike to escape business. Um, and I decided to kind of combine them in my career. I have a huge passion for bicycles, of course, but but also for business. So it's been really fun to. Yeah kind of combine both of those and see how they play together. And, you know, I, I usually go ride my bike after a stressful day of work. And, and sometimes that's funny because sometimes, you know, I just spent 10 hours, you know, working on that exact product that, I, that I'm out riding for fun. So it's always kind of a yeah. fun paradox of, of, of sorts. But your, um, your fun and your business sort of intertwine. And that can be challenging, I'm sure. It can, but it can also be really fun. I'm actually, we're packing up today to go on about a 10-day uh, dealer tour, kind of sales tour, although we don't really call it that. Um, you know, go to some demo events between Colorado and, and Utah and Idaho and Washington. And those 10-day sales trips feel a whole lot more like, you know, more, more like vacation than, than work a whole lot of the time. So I feel pretty lucky when I get oh, to do this. Yeah. I told you behind the scenes in the email to you, I was like, you know, you're, you're living my dream, man. Like you really are. Cause you've, <laughs> you've done such a great job building this brand. Obviously we'll share the hard road you've been on, but now you're on a different side of that road. So it's maybe a bit more challenging in some ways, obviously, cause business is always challenging, but you're on the, you know, you're on the flip side, you're on the less stressful side, maybe different stress, maybe is, is probably how you frame it, but yeah. Different stress, but a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I, I wear flip-flops and t-shirts to work. It's pretty relaxed. And, you know, on our sales trips, we get a whole lot of bike riding and, you know, going out for fun dinners and, and all sorts of activities. But, you know, usually when we're driving, we all take turns sitting on our laptop and yeah. getting work calls done. And, and you know, we don't usually show that. We're a company that sells high-end bicycles. We sell fun. We sell people's passions. And so we generally show and share the fun, passion, smile, you know, riding bikes, cracking a beer at the end of a end of a bike ride, you know, all, all this fun stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we don't show all the work that goes into creating this business too. So it's, it's fun to talk about that a bit. Yeah. Well, how did, uh, how did you get here? Do you go all the way back to eBay? I know that's a fun story, but how do you, yeah. how do you share how you got into the bike business? Yeah, I'll, sh I'll kind of share and then ask any questions for things I, I forgot. But um, so I'm uh, 30 years old now. I started in the bike industry when I was, I think, nine or 10 years old. I definitely didn't think it was going to be my my full career. And, and here we are now about 20 years later. As a kid, I was I was pretty 
kind of nerdy, geeky kid. I got really into a few different hobbies. I was into woodworking. That was my main thing for a while. And and then bicycles kind of came next. And uh, I started uh, eBay business when I was about 10 years old. And I'd buy these bikes on eBay and then pull them all apart and sell all the parts uh, separately on eBay. And, and it started off slow, but when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, it was really cruising. And I kind of ran that through high school. I started working at a bike shop when I was 14. And so I kind of had the bike shop uh, experience and then ran this eBay business on the side. And I did the whole, you know, mowed lawns and painted decks and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I could scrape together as much money as, as possible to buy my own bicycles just to feed my <laughs> feed my hobby um yeah but the, the ebay business was a fantastic learning experience i i got a paypal account when i was uh, 11 years old and my, my parents found out about that a few months later and they were pretty horrified because uh you know 20 years ago it was the concept of sending money over the internet was not nearly as as common as it as it is now but i, I actually did pretty well with that with that ebay business and it it bought me all my all my bikes it bought me you know my first car those those sorts of things um wow and then it really just kind of snowballed from there i worked in a fantastic bike shop i I grew up in anchorage alaska and and worked in a bike shop up there the two owners of that bike shop then started their own bicycle brand where they were manufacturing uh you know some small runs of bikes in taiwan and and that kind of really sparked it for me i sort of thought wow i could kind of go to the next level and, and it, you can just have an idea and then go have this product made. And so I, you know, I kind of owe everything to those guys, Jamie and Bill up in Alaska, who taught me that you could just come up with a concept and, and make it and create a brand and, and sell a product. And, and uh, so kind of long story short, I went to undergraduate in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, I decided to start a business there and that was my first bicycle brand it was called borealis fat bikes and we were the first company to introduce a carbon fiber fat bike so it's bikes with big wide tires made for riding on snow or sand and i had no idea what i was doing i decided to start it my my junior year of college uh, in my dorm room uh i I thought it was going to be a hobby i went on alibaba and and reached out to all these manufacturers and then i i flew to china for three weeks and visited all these factories and and you know, completely had no clue what I was doing. Um, wow. But the factories in China rolled out the red carpet and I kind of learned everything from those experiences. Uh, I, I thought that business was going to be a complete hobby. We were going to sell 50 bikes in the first year. That was what we budgeted for. And we we launched the brand. Um, I put my personal cell phone number on the on the press release. <laughs> and uh, oh within gosh. within like yeah, horrible idea. I still get calls uh, ten, 10 years later. <laughs> but I thought it was going to be small and, and we we're going to run out of my college house. And and uh, right. within a couple hours of that press release going out uh, on one website, we had sold more than the 50 bikes we budgeted for for the whole year. So I pretty suddenly realized I had a business. Um, That's interesting. The humble beginnings is uh, is surprising because uh, something else, one thing, but like put your personal phone number on the press release is like these are things you you generally don't do whenever because you just don't think that right you're thinking we're going to sell 50 bikes but you probably sold a lot more than that of course the interesting thing there is that uh there was a time frame when the fat bike phase really took off and i think that was the sweet spot right like you had growing up in anchorage i'm sure that there was fat bikes there because you got lots of snow i'm sure and then colorado springs i'm sure you got fat bikes there because snow Mm -hmm. right yeah it was a weird like all of a sudden in about 2000 
10 fat bikes became pretty popular in, in, in Alaska, maybe 2000, 2007, eight. Um, but in the rest of the country, they weren't that popular. They were just made for riding on snow. There were these heavy, awkward, clunky bikes. Uh, but living in Alaska, I saw how fun they were and how popular they were getting. And the rest of the United States and, and a lot of the rest of the world wasn't really there yet. And uh, Alaska is always like 20 years behind the times. So it's never ahead of the curve on, on anything. So I kind of saw this as, as an opportunity because Alaska was ahead of the curve and had figured out this, you know, niche within a niche of the mountain bike world. Yeah. And I figured let's take that idea and make a high end lightweight, more, you know, mainstream, if that's even the right word, uh, bike, you know, all the bikes out there were about 30 or 35 pounds. And we came out with a bike that was 22 pounds, which is, you know, way, way lighter and substantially different. Yeah. Poppier. You can jump with it. You can bounce with it. Those tires alone are the suspension, right? Cause it's a hardtail. Exactly. They're, you run like four PSI. They're just big balloon tires and, and they're, they're funny, weird looking bikes, but they're an absolute blast. And and I guess they're more of a blast than I expected they, they would have been because we I thought we were going to sell 50 bikes. And, and and really within within a couple hours, we had sold, I don't know, 75 or 100 units. And I was sitting there in my college house. There was, you know, it was all messy from a party the night before. And, and uh, uh, I started getting all these phone calls. I didn't even know the press release was had gone out yet. And I got all these phone calls from people saying, oh, I'll, I'll buy one. And we'd said in the press release, taking pre-orders with a 50% deposit. I had, you know, we had a basic website and basic credit card processing, um, but I had to type everything in manually over the phone to take people's money. And, and I was just, you know, the phone was ringing and I was typing in credit card numbers and, and I'd hang up and I'd have two messages, people that wanted to buy this stuff. And, and I was just losing my mind. And then I got a call from, um, from backcountry.com and backcountry.com is one of the largest retailers of any of outdoor products in general. And they said, Hey, we want to buy, I think they said, 75 bikes and i said hold on a second let me get back to my desk and i and i put the phone on mute and i just got up and like jumped up and down and you know that was a a, a few hundred thousand dollar order yeah. and i didn't have a desk i was in my college house i didn't have an office or, or anything like that and I, I just had to put the phone on mute for a second to kind of you know have a enjoy the moment mo yeah enjoy enjoy the moment so it was, and then from there it just took off and and huge learning experience it was really great hmm. so humble beginnings this was supposed to be a hobby it was obviously not a hobby because you sold way more the first day. Where did you go from there? How did it legitimize Borealis? How did le what did it do to your college career? Did you stop going to college? Did you quit? Did you like just where'd you go from there? <laughs> so I, I I very quickly realized this was a business and not a hobby. Um, I had uh, we'd started the business with I put ten thousand dollars in. I had a fifty percent business partner. He also put ten thousand dollars in. I had borrowed about half that from my wonderful parents. So I felt very lucky to be able to do that. And then that first day we launched, I realized that $20,000 of seed money wasn't going to quite do, mm -hmm. do the trick. But I, I started all this because I wanted to make a bike. I did start it because I wanted to make a, a business. So I think, you know, looking back on it, I really wish I'd thought much more about creating a business rather than just the bike in the in the very beginning but you know I learned all that eventually mm -hmm. and I'm and I'm still learning that so we pretty quickly had to go raise more money my business partner was uh, quite a bit older than me he was successful he had retired at a young age um, I was very lucky to have him as a business partner I was kind of the bike guy he was the business guy he put in quite a bit of money to help us you know fund inventory and things like that but we bootstrapped everything I mean we rented a basement of a bike shop for $250 a month wow. so we could, you know, have a location to ship inventory to. A few months later, we realized that wasn't going to work and we went and got our, our own facility. But we only spent money on inventory, everything else we, we did ourselves. And so because of that, 
uh, you know, I got my hands in everything. I was, you know, working on the computer all day and then, you know, I'd go to college classes and then at night come over, I paid a bunch of my roommates and stuff um, to help me build wheels because all the fat bike wheels at the time we had to build by hand. So we'd sit there, you know, me and some friends, uh, we paid them like 10 bucks a wheel or 15 bucks a wheel to sit there and, and build these things. Um, and I did finish college on, on time. I took quite a few classes pass fail there at the end. Some professors were pretty pretty lenient, um, which I'm very thankful for. My, my thesis, uh, my college thesis was very much related to my business. It had to do with Facebook marketing. Now it's completely outdated, but it was about 46 pages of, of me saying the same thing over and over again because I just didn't put a whole lot of effort into it. And, wow. and luckily, luckily I got a passing grade on that, but it, it was a close one there at, at, at the end. <laughs> That's a long thesis, 46 pages. Well, part of that liberal arts education. Um, Colorado College is a fantastic place to go. Um, but yeah, at the end, I was a bit more focused on my on my business than, than classes. My, my senior year, we had, so, so we, we launched in 2013. My senior year of, of college, we, um, so we did like a million dollars in sales in the first four months. The next year, we did uh, a bit over $5 million. I, I had 17 employees. Um, and we had distribution, I, I don't know, in, in over 20 countries, but I was traveling all over to, to China, um, to Taiwan for the manufacturing side of things, to Europe for the selling side of things. And it was like this whirlwind of a senior year of college. Of um, And I told myself that I'm going to have a senior year and I'm going to do all the fun stuff and do all the, you know, go out to all the parties and have as much fun as possible. Um that's been kind of a focus yeah. of mine is trying trying to balance fun and work. I don't think I slept a, a whole lot that year because I was trying to pack it all in. But it was just a, an incredible experience to be able to travel all over the world and sell these bikes and get articles written in, you know, German and Norwegian and Swedish magazines. And like, you know, there's pictures of me and my bikes and all these magazines all over the, you know, world. And it's it's a, you know, a lot of these niche magazines, but I was just and I'm still like 10 years later, I'm like, how, how did this happen? I was like this bike nerd selling stuff on eBay and, and just <laughs> tried to make some bikes. And, and now we're, it's just really neat to see where it's all, yeah. where it's all gone. So you go from paying roommates to build wheels, fat bike wheels in your, in your dorm room. You go from a million dollars in your first few months of sales, uh, $5 million the next year, 17 employees how did you rationalize transitioning from this should have been a hobby, was going to be a hobby to a business? Like, how did you, I know you had a business partner that was more the business side and you were more the bike side, but how you had to manage some of the business because it was two partners oh, yeah. and employees, right? So two equity partners and two and several employees over time. How did you transition to learn these things? You just, you have a lot of scars in your knuckles. You got bloody knuckles. You know, how did you, how did you pick this up and learn the business? It was the most fun I've ever had. I, I you know, I, I think learning, I, I've always been okay at school and, and, at, and at, you know, college and stuff, but um, I like learning things that are really practical and maybe not things that aren't so practical. So, you know, being in college and taking some classes that I didn't necessarily love every second of, but then having this business that I could, you know, you get at what you put in. If you, if you figure something mm -hmm. out, if you, if you create a good product, you, you immediately see that feedback. So, so I just loved it. So I tried to learn as much as possible and there's no better way to learn business than to be in it and and be visiting manufacturers and distributors <laughs> and, and, and dealers and placing orders and creating products and hiring you know contractors and designers and engineers and and you know warehousing and within a matter of months i feel like i you know earned an mba equivalent in, 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 in the bike world but i just you know read books and watched youtube videos you know i was watching youtube videos for how to create 3d models and solidworks so i could design a, a, a ram and then videos on 
how a you know profit loss sheet is supposed to work. And thanks to the internet, you can kind of learn everything. Um, so, so that was kind of my crash course in in business, and I, I think I'm definitely still in my business crash course right now. But hopefully, with a few more, mm-hmm. you know, a few more years of experience under my belt, never ends, never ends. Never. Well, that's the good thing about business too; it's always an adventure. You know, some people want to fast forward to the end. The journey is the part of it. Like that's the whole thing is the journey. You know, the acquisition, the sale, the IPO. I mean, those are fun moments, of course. Those are great things. But you know, it's the journey that really is the fun part, the people you get to work with, the things you get to do with them, the lives you get to change, the people you get to inspire. That's why I said before this call, like sharing your story on this show to me is super awesome because you're going to inspire the next Adam Miller. You know what I mean? Like you're going to, somebody out there is going to look back to this podcast and be like, dang, he sold parts on eBay, learned how bikes work, built Borealis, built Revel, built Y cycles. I could do that too. Anybody could. It's, it's, I think, having a healthy dose of naivety is sometimes fairly good for starting a business. I think mm-hmm. today, if someone said, would you go start a bike business? I'd probably say, you know, absolutely not. It's a lot of work, <laughs> but kind of not knowing what to expect and just diving in was, was fantastic. And like you said, it's, it's about the journey. I mean, I have some, some moments I remember, you know, we, I was 21 years old with, with Borealis and we, we had to, you know, a few trade shows in, in Vegas and we didn't have enough employees to run the business and go to the trade show. So I, you know, paid, you know, friends, college roommates, things like that to, you know, come help out. And, uh, you know, we can, we can Las Vegas as a 21 year old with a successful business and getting magazine articles written about you and uh, about your business. There's some pretty fun times, uh, w- with all those experiences, you know, we'd go to Germany for trade shows and events and, you know, China and the, the Chinese business culture is, uh, that makes, you know, college partying sometimes look like, you know, look pretty mellow with some of those things. So <laughs> I just, I, I absolutely love traveling. And so to have this business that gave me the excuse to travel all over, whether it was, you know, Vegas or, or China or other places in Colorado, I was, it's just like sensory overload of yeah. all these incredible experiences and, and people I got to meet along the way. Mm-hmm. So you sold Borealis though. I did. And it, it wasn't very long after you started that you sold it. It was what, four years. That seemed like a short run. What, what happened? What changed? Yep. Um, that was my uh, not so fun learning lesson in the business world. Uh, I had a 50% partner that I brought on. And after about a year and a half of operating the publicly operating the business, uh, we realized we were not getting along. And I did not have enough money to buy him out. So he bought me out. That's the very hmm. abbreviated version. And we can certainly go into more of it, but mm. uh, it, it was a lesson in kind of personalities and people. And it sounds so cliche to say, you know, people matter. That's the most important thing. And that's a lesson I, I really, really learned. Um, and something that I think I've uh, applied well going forward, uh, making sure you, you know, work with people, especially partners that are like-minded, care about the same things, um, I learned that lesson the hard way. I, I was, you know, I paid my first lawyer when I was 21 years old on a credit card because I didn't have enough money to to put him on retainer. Our business was making making a lot of money for for the size that it was, uh, but I didn't take any money out of it. All that money was getting reinvested right back in. So I was, you know, bootstrapping to say the least. At one mm-hmm. point uh, early on in the business, we uh, 
it was a Tuesday, payroll was on Friday, and we had, you know, like eleven thousand dollars in the bank account, and payroll was like twenty two thousand. I forget what the exact numbers were. Um, and we didn't have enough money in the bank account to make, to make payroll. So it was a Tuesday, and I, I I listed my car for sale, my Subaru WRX is my favorite little fast car, um, and I sold it on a sold it on Wednesday, and I took five hundred bucks out so I could pay my personal rent and buy groceries and put the other money in the bank account and and made payroll. A month later, I was able to buy myself a truck. So it all, it all worked out, but yeah, it was only, you know, business was doing well, but we didn't take any money out of the company. And, and so, uh, hiring a lawyer on a credit card certainly, uh, was a challenging moment. And then we had about nine months of, of legal issues and, um, you know, business partnership breakups happen all the time. That's something I've learned since I went through that experience, but mine was a pretty, it, it was, it was a pretty, pretty rough one. Um, so I learned a lot. Mm. Do you still think about those moments? Like, is it, uh, do you still like sort of shudder? You got PTSD from these these moments. Is there a lot of things you've done inside of Revel in terms of the business yeah. partnerships you've forged that have obviously been changed and rectified because of that? Yeah, yeah, I, I still think about it a lot. You know, I I, I think I, I had such a hard time because I did end up selling the business to my partner, and and I got I, I got a, a chunk of money enough to buy a house uh, and you know have a couple hundred grand to start. Um, my next business, but it, it was really not, it, it was pennies on the dollar, maybe mm. dimes on the dollar compared to what, what the business was, was actually worth. So it, it was a really tough time. Um, because I had started this business, I brought him on as a partner. We didn't see eye to eye and, and, um, you know, he did have a lot more experience than I did. We, we had made our business, uh, agreement, our, our, uh, shareholder agreement and stuff on rocketlawyer.com. I got the $15, you know, two week trial on rocketlawyer.com nice. and that's what we made our, our legal documents. So, um, you know, looking back on it, it's pretty simple to say, wow, this, 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 and this all happened. Of course, something wasn't going to work out how, how you expected, yeah. but, but in the moment, you know, I thought it was going to be a hobby. I, I thought it was going to be small and we didn't, um, mm -hmm. plan ahead for, you know, all those what if scenarios and, um, so no, I, I, and then I think, you know, I, I, for a couple of years, it was pretty challenging for me after that because I kind of had my baby, you know, kind of taken away from me in a sense. Um, and I got paid out. And so I didn't quite allow myself to realize how much it affected me and, 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 and how difficult it really was to kind of transition out of that. I mean, at age, uh, 22, three, 23, that's my math at least. Yeah. 23 ish. 20, 23. Yeah. yeah. You know, I signed these documents. My car was owned by the business. And until we signed the documents, I didn't know that our deal was going to go through. It was super up in the air. So we finally signed and I handed over the keys. And I, I actually, I asked the lawyer on the other side to give me a ride home because that was my final, you know, kind of, I was like, I either got to walk home or, 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 or whatever. Um, and then the next day I moved from Colorado Springs to Denver. And then all of a sudden I didn't go to work the next day it was a it was a very strange feeling and i you know that doesn't usually happen at that age so it's kind of my quarter life crisis of of, of sorts and it, it was actually pretty neat you know without getting into all the details um i ended up seven of my employees at borealis um ended up working for me at rebel bikes you know several years later and so um it was a pretty neat experience you know years later to have these people that I'd hired at my first company, all of them moved to a different town. A lot of them took pay cuts as we were getting started. Mm -hmm. um, it was really neat to kind of have that family back together. We we're a really close knit group of work, you know, coworkers and, and, and friends. And so to work together again on the, on the next project was, was very cool. Mm -hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version supported, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know engineering organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using you know old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of you know older systems running more slowly or the build times or you know virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use the system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. So we're, we're at a bit of a transition, I would say, from the Borealis story to the beginnings of Y-Cycles and Revel. And this is the area where I'm unclear because I only know what you've told me and I only know what I've learned as a fan of your of your bike brand and obviously an owner of your Revel Rascal, which is the best mid-travel bike ever. So I love it. <laughs> but uh, you, I love hearing that. <laughs> you sold in 2015. Traumatic story. But then the beginning of Y and Revel is 2014. There's an overlap there. What's the, what am I missing? Is that the real dates? How does that work out? 
so slight, slightly off. So the I officially sold January one of twenty fifteen. Um, I sold my ownership in Borealis, uh, and then really I officially Y cycles and Revel bikes did. Uh, I incorporated them in two thousand sixteen. I started working on them in two thousand fifteen. Gotcha. So January one twenty fifteen. Didn't go to work the next day, um, you know, all that fun stuff. Uh, and, and for about a week, I was thinking, there's no way I'm ever making bikes again. Um, there's no way I'm going to work in the bike industry. I want to ride bikes for fun and not mix all this, you know, negative work stuff with it. And and that that lasted for that feeling lasted for less than a week. Um, I think I, a few days later, I kind of thought, all right, I'm going to do this again and I'm going to do this right. And I'm going to. I'm going to make something I'm really proud of and, and kind of take everything I learned from, from Borealis and, right. and do the absolute best I can. And, and so I, I kind of got, got fired up then. And, and, uh, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I was, you know, bikes were my favorite thing and I wanted to make the best bikes. That's about all I knew. Um, so that was early 2015. Uh, I spent a few months kind of figuring things out and doing the early twenties, lost soul sort of a thing. I packed up my truck and drove from Colorado up to Alaska. I actually moved back in with my parents um, and, and they were just fantastic. Um, I went fishing almost every day. I went biking almost every day. Uh, I kind of got obsessed with making smoked salmon. That was like this weird hobby I got into to go back to my Alaskan roots or something. And um, it, it was midsummer of 2015. I, I had spent like three weeks sitting in my parents' backyard making smoked salmon. And it was really phenomenal smoked salmon. I was, I was really proud of it. But after about three weeks of doing that, I, I, I thought, what am I doing with myself? Let, let's, let's, let's get, let's get back to work. Yeah. So I packed up my truck and, um, I had a neat opportunity, uh, with a kind of mentor friend in Utah, a guy by the name of Jason, who'd started several composite, uh, manufacturing companies and, and some bicycle industry companies. And he said, Hey, next business you start coming down to Utah and, and I'll, and I'll give you a hand. And so I packed up and with my dog and drove down to uh, Ogden, Utah and bought a house there and figured, all right, here's where I'm going to start my business. And, and I had this, I, I'd been kind of working on these designs in my head for these titanium bikes. And I knew I was going to make carbon full suspension bikes, but, but that's really about it. So I was in Utah and that's where I decided let's, let's start making a few different bikes and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Carbon fiber really is the, is the switch there. I mean, we can get into bike tech a little bit, but it, it's sort of your differentiator, right? Like I think when I compare Revel to the brands out there, I compare you to Specialized, I compare you to Yeti. I think you're probably most similar to Yeti, maybe even chasing their tail and beating them in many ways. Uh, we could talk a bit about uh, the Switch Infinity if you want and why the CBF platform doesn't require that and maybe how you went over it, which is anti-business side of it. It's more the tech side of it, but I'm curious about those things as well. But this idea to go full carbon, so not aluminum, but that's Y-Cycles. Y-Cycles is what? Titanium bikes primarily? Titanium. Yep. So, which is, I've never ridden one of those. So I have like zero experience and zero feedback on that kind of bike and how it feels different than aluminum or even carbon. But it's a different switch to go from aluminum as your frame platform to carbon, which is super stiff, compliant, all these, you know, buzzwords slash real words in the bike world when you investigate as a rider what you should own and buy. But take us down that journey. So you went to Utah, carbon fiber. What's the next step? Yeah. So I, I decided, so I knew my ultimate goal was to uh, 
it, it was may, maybe maybe selfish, but my ultimate goal was, hey, I want to make the bikes that I want to ride. Mm-hmm. I'd made these fat bikes. Fat bikes are great, but they weren't the bike I wanted to ride every day. I was a total bike nerd, and that meant I wanted to ride everything from, you know, handmade titanium, you know, gravel bikes to the ultimate goals, full suspension, carbon fiber mountain bikes. That's kind of the pinnacle of engineering. It's, it's sort of the most popular style of bike within the overall bike, you know, high-end bicycle industry. Um, and that's what I like to ride. I, uh, you know, was lucky enough to be able to ride bikes all around, you know, Colorado and, and Utah, you know, going to Moab on the weekends and riding in the desert. Um, a good carbon full suspension mountain bike is the, is the pinnacle. So I knew in my head, that's what I wanted to create. And I knew I wanted to make the best one. And I didn't really know what that meant. So I decided before I start doing that, I'm going to make the other bikes I want to ride, which is handmade titanium bikes, really kind of artistic, super, super niche. I mean, small segment of the industry. I found a manufacturer in China that was a, it's a mom and pop shop. There's about 18 employees there. And I, I, I met with them in 2015 when I went over there kind of just to do a tour of old contacts and new contacts in, in China and Taiwan as I was between my businesses. And, um, and I, and I met this factory and the bikes were just absolutely gorgeous. And I thought, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to design some, some bikes and, and, and work with them. Um, and we, we built out a whole test lab for, you know, ISO certification and and, and testing and and really kind of took this higher level carbon engineering oversight to design these titanium bikes. And it was totally like my inner bike geek coming out. I was like, I'm just going to make these bikes that I want and we'll sell some and it'll be a super small brand. Um, But it'll kind of be my way, you know, my way to get my foot back in the door as I'm working on the ideas and, and the development for the carbon full suspension bikes. And, and we launched the brand and, and it was, you know, it was me and, um, and it was small and it was supposed to be small. We launched with three models. Uh, I found a couple, couple buddies in Utah that I could, you know, pay, um, hundred bucks a bike to, to build them and pack them up to help, help me ship them out the door. But it was, you know, it was me with a couple contract workers for about a year and a half. Um, and it was really fun because I got to kind of do my own thing and really think through everything. Um, the design of the bikes, my absolute favorite part, and then creating a website and a brand. And I called it Y Cycles. I mean, it's a weird name. The idea was not that that brand was ever going to be big. It's it's handmade, beautifully crafted titanium bikes that that I designed, and then we partnered with this incredible manufacturer to make. Uh, they have lifetime warranties. Um, just super comfortable, nice, well made, high end titanium bikes. Mm-hmm. And it was an absolute blast. And then at the same time, I started thinking, you know, getting more detailed about the carbon bikes I wanted to make. And and I decided to call it Revel Bikes. Um, I had that name written down for some other naming exercise a few years ago, and it, I always kind of liked it. And so, you know, bought the domain name Revel and started thinking about it. And I knew it was going to be carbon full suspension bikes made for, you know, riding in Moab and all these other kind of iconic mountain bike destinations. But I didn't want to just make a bike just like our competitors, just like Specialized or Trek or Yeti or Ibis or Santa Cruz or, or, or Pivot. And so the real secret sauce of any full suspension mountain bike is is the suspension platform, the way the rear wheel moves up and down over rocks. So really there's, there's about four main suspension systems out there in the market. Three or four of them have patents on them still. And, th- and there's several other small, small variations out there, but you know, there's, there's horse link, there's DW, there's VPP, uh, these different sort of patented designs that different engineers have come up with to 
optimize how the rear wheel moves up and down. Basically, you want your bike to be as smooth and comfortable as possible, just like a car or a motorcycle or anything. Suspension is the secret sauce of all that. It's how your bike goes around corners. It's how it goes over bumps and rocks and roots. The difference with a bicycle compared to a car or a motorcycle is that efficiency really matters. You don't have a motor putting out this power. You have a human who's pedaling and rotating and putting power down inconsistently on pedals and so if you have a suspension system that's really smooth and comfortable when you're going in a straight line but then you start pedaling and it bobs up and down you're losing a bunch of efficiency so with bicycles it has to be really really fine-tuned to optimize that human power efficiency and the comfort when you're going fast over different terrain and all these different companies have come up with their secret suspension system that's the best of the best and it's the best because of all these reasons but i didn't want to just go license one of these other patents that these other companies use because that's kind of boring and then it's just kind of a copycat system so it's an also ran yeah it's a yeah you're just essentially doing what they've done but the same but different yep you know yep and i wanted to create something that was a little different, maybe not drastically different. There's a lot of things about a lot of bikes that are very similar, but mm-hmm. you know, some little minor details really make some some big big differences. So, um, actually, I went to a trade show uh, in Vegas, Interbike one year. A friend of mine who had helped me with some graphic design with the business early on said, "Hey, you, you got to go ride one of these uh, Canfield bikes." And I kind of thought, "No way!" You know, that's a that's a brand that is a small brand. They made these really like big chunky aluminum bikes made for like Red Bull Rampage and jumping off like 30 foot cliffs and all this crazy stuff. And I never really thought of that brand as, a, as something that I was attracted to or thought there was something special about. Um, his two brothers started a small company, very, very niche. But this guy said, go, go ride one of these bikes. And so I said, okay, fine. We're at a trade show. We're there to test ride bikes. And so I, I jumped on one. And within 100 yards in the parking lot, I thought, holy cow, this is something really special. Yeah. These guys had, uh, this guy, Chris Canfield, had designed the suspension platform for their bikes, which were mainly made for going downhill and going really fast downhill and kind of, I don't want to say on, on accident, but maybe it wasn't quite as talked about the suspension platform he came up with was the most efficient pedaling platform as well. So it was incredible going downhill when you grab a rear brake, the, it doesn't affect the suspension. So the suspension still moves up and down. It keeps that tire on the ground. It keeps traction. And that's how these bikes were winning downhill races they were in world cup downhill races which you know especially in europe is a massive sport it's like watching football in the u.s like totally world cup downhills is is, is a big deal red bull tv is on our tv all the time around here adam so we yep we're uci (laughs) world cup watching it all the time you know aaron gwynn all the people yeah i mean we my kid my son is is six and he's a future rider i'm training him young (laughs) that's awesome but we we know the riders like their sports so which it it is a sport but it's like football or baseball traditional american sport type things is what i mean by that exactly yeah well we'll have to get your son on one of our bikes when when he's ready for it but yeah i mean world cup downhill it's there's there's fantasy leagues like fantasy football it's it's a big deal in the u.s it's a bit smaller relatively compared to yeah compared to europe but it's growing like crazy so you know the amount of technology that goes into creating these bikes for world cup downhill races it is huge it's, it's like you know f1 you know an, an f1 team on a on a much smaller scale but you know yeah all these little tiny details that can help squeeze a quarter second out of a corner or, or over over a technical section make a big difference so chris canfield designed the system that optimized all that i mean these bikes go downhill so well the suspension feels bottomless everything is just is incredible for going downhill but i got on the bike and thought this thing goes uphill better than any other system too and and i kind of come from a 
racer background. I tried to be a professional racer. I wasn't quite fast enough for that. And so I gave <laughs> up on those dreams, which was the best thing I did because now I get to ride bikes for fun and not for not for not racing, for which at least for yes. me is a whole lot better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of pressure on the glory stance, you know? Yeah. It becomes a job instead of a fun hobby for, yeah. for a lot of people. And I saw myself going down that path. So bikes are fun. Yeah, bikes are fun. <laughs> That is interesting. So you're talking about the CBF platform, which is the Canfield Balance Formula. Is that right, Kent? Correct. Okay. And this was developed by the Canfield brothers. You rode the bike 100 yards later. This goes uphill. You talked about why downhill is so important, but also the uphill. Because if you want to build a carbon fiber, mainstream, high-end, you know, full suspension bike, you've got to do both. Because enduro requires you to drive up yes. or pedal up and enjoy the ride down. So you got to have a good pedal platform. Exactly. It's about, yeah, it's about going uphill and downhill. And, you know, if you, th if you take the average rider who's going to go out for an hour long ride after work, 45 minutes is usually going uphill and about 15 minutes is going downhill. So you want, you want that uphill mm -hmm. part to be as fun as possible to make the downhills. You know, that's, that's where everyone hoots and hollers and, and gets a big old smile on their face. That's right. Uh, but, but you want the uphill to, to be as quick as possible. And, and, and I like an efficient pedaling bike. It's, it's fun to go fast uphill too. So I, yeah, the CBF patented system, all, all these patented systems have three letter acronyms. That's kind of something everyone makes fun of in the bike world of, you know, so, someone's going to come up with a four letter acronym or, 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 or something. <laughs> um, but so, CBF was kind of a, a new system that had only been used on these Canfield bikes um, separate than, you know, it was really mainly three or four suspension platforms that were used on, you know, the other 40 or 50 main brands out there. So I thought, okay, one, this is the best. And two, this is exactly what I need to make the bikes I want to make differently. So I figured if I, if I could take that suspension system and build a high-end carbon fiber, you know, semi you know modern more mainstream style bike i thought that's a pretty good selling proposition right there so mm. i went on a ride at bootleg canyon on that bike by the end i absolutely loved it i, I went and talked to chris canfield and i said hey can i license the suspension patent from you and and he said uh yeah sure and i i said oh, okay um you know how's it work i don't know and he said you know i don't know you you, you tell me <laughs> and i was like immediately i was like this is gonna work out great this is this is yeah um that's hilarious th i can i i can work with this because some of these other patented systems you know i'd talk to the patent owners and they it's it's a very clear process it's here's how many dollars it costs to license it here's how many dollars per per frame here's the timeline here's the process here's the legal agreements you know all this stuff and chris is like i don't know you tell me so i thought you know we're we just chatted together we we worked it out and 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 we've been we've become great friends since then um we've biked all over the place he sleeps in his van on my driveway you know whenever he comes through town here and so working with him has just been incredible he's this he's a suspension genius yeah i don't know how he figured out how to create bicycle suspension like this but you know moving these pivot points and these rotation points on the product around if you if you move them by half a millimeter it has a fairly drastic effect on how that bike rides and yeah he just gets it so i i feel super lucky to have you know met him and create our bikes around that suspension platform yeah i heard him so thankfully i mentioned worldwide cycler a couple of times now just in passing but i want to talk to you at some point about you know, keys to distribution. I think they may have been one of them for you, but I saw Chris talk about the CBF platform on their YouTube channel. And he talked about the center of curvature, the anti-squat, the, you know, all these different things that sort of go into this. And like, you could just, you almost glaze over at some point, but also smile. Cause you're like, this guy knows so much mm -hmm. and whatever he's done is magic. 
and everything he's saying is like pure gold because like he's talking like you're saying like a move at a half a millimeter this way you've got the sweet spot here this is golden arch this and that and so he talked primarily in this video about uh how he came to the rails cbf version of the cbf platform which i think is if i understand it correctly there's a patent within the canfield balance formula patent that they can you know sort of like hang out in so there's variations to this mm -hmm. platform but you know their version and your version is not exactly the same but it's in the same sort of like spec so to speak you know there's variations if i'm describing this well enough but rails is i'm sure different than rascals but it's still a cbf platform it's still a cbf uh, suspension platform Yep. Yeah. So the CBF patent and really any patent of, of this sort kind of gives you a range and there's certain things within that range that are, you know, fall under the patent and things would fall outside of the patent. And it's, you know, anyone can go and Google patents and, and, and look it up if you really want to get into all the techie details. But yeah, yeah there, there's it's really more of a concept of using the center of curvature in this little area that's about 50 millimeters over the top of a chain ring as your kind of focus point instead of a virtual pivot point like some other brands um, or some other systems would use. Um, so it's a different way of thinking about how to design this, the suspension that really takes the chain ring and the center of curvature into effect. Right. And by doing that, you have you have a range within that center of curvature and there's a few different ways to accomplish that range. But yeah, our bikes, you know, even our different models, and now we have four different models of full suspension bikes. It's it's all very tweaked and fine-tuned within that patented range to, to optimize it. And, that, and that's where the kind of the secret sauce and the real magic comes in. You know, someone could go out there and lay out a bike that fits into the CBF platform and it might not ride incredibly well when you when you start mixing in you know 29 inch wheels compared to 27.5 and even different tire sizes and even different chainring sizes and then you know geometries with different reaches and seat tube angles it's a whole pie and, and the suspension platform is one piece of it but you have to factor in all these other things of what the bike's going to do to, to optimize that suspension design, even within that suspension patent. Mm -hmm. And that's where Chris Canfield, you know, kind of working with us to say, hey, here's what we want. How do we accomplish it? I mean, the, the guy's a complete magician. Mm. So let's take the Rail, for example, which I believe was the first bike you released as the Revel Burn. Is that correct? Yeah, we released the, the Rail and the Rascal on the same day. Okay. So I was, I didn't know that then. Uh, but actually, I did, but I didn't think about that. So you've got, for the listener's sake, we're kind of getting into bike tech, which this is primarily, you know, this is outer edge of Founders Talk. I will definitely <laughs> say that. So we're in like a different area of tech. But this is what I think is the most interesting thing about bikes. One, they're super enjoyable. But then the bike tech is just, to me, is just super fascinating. Like, I just love geeking out. Like, it's kind of like my analog, like digital. So we're in this digital space where we build so software and, you know, we build tech companies and we're entrepreneurs and all this fun stuff. But then at the same time, like on my lunch or my mornings or my weekends with my son, I want to go ride. I want to ride the best bikes out there. And I just get naturally into the bike tech. And I think this is for me, one of the deciding factors, which is why you're on the show. Cause I was going to, like I'd mentioned before, I end up specialize. I have a stump jumper. Uh, it's 145 on the back, 150 in the front. Now I push it to 160 cause I like to go a little further. But it doesn't matter. You know, I tweaked the pie a little bit on my side of things. And then I was in the market for, that was an aluminum bike. And it was a low-ram bike. So I bought the bike for two grand and took it all apart eventually and rebuilt it myself with all custom components because I wanted higher-end stuff. I learned more about the bike. And essentially, I tore it down to nothing, just the frame itself, put everything back on. All new components, all that good stuff. So I learned, probably like you did back in your eBay days, how to take a bike apart, 
what was involved with putting it back together. And I learned what I wanted from a bike. And as I was on that journey, I was like, you know, what's my next bike? I want a carbon fiber bike. I want carbon fiber rims or maybe in my case, uh, fu- you know, fusion fiber rims. We'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. But uh, I was like, you know, what's the next bike for me? And Yeti really is an amazing bike brand. And I've heard so much about it. You know, you go out to any bike park or any place and you see cool people riding these, you know, blue or ready or, you know, like different colored bikes. And they're just amazing looking bikes. And uh, I was like, that's my next bike. I'm going to build that from the frame up, et cetera, et cetera. But then I was also a big fan of Worldwide Cyclery on YouTube, paid attention, learned a lot about how to build bikes from them and Liam and others from their team. And so a lot of what I know is because of their taste, really. And thankfully, they put out all that taste in a YouTube channel. And I learned from that taste. They got all these years of wisdom of riding bikes. I'm newer to the industry. So I learned from their taste, you know, their curation, basically. And I guess in 2019, they found you. This is years after you got the CBF platform, built out the rail and the rascal. And this was like, that's when I learned about essentially Revel and the rascal and the rail. And I really was torn for a long time between the rail and the rascal. And just super quickly, the, the main difference is longer travel, smaller wheels, bigger wheels, smaller travel. That's the difference between the rail exactly. and the rascal for, for the listener's sake. And these are two different products you have. And so long story short, I was like, you know what? I like story. And this kind of leads me back into to more your story than just geeking out about bike tech and all these fun things is the power of story. Yeti is great. They've been on World Cup podiums. They've done amazing things. And sure, they're a super popular bike. Very expensive. Yours is also very expensive. That's just the nature of the business. But I liked your story. I like scrappy. I like ambitious. I like people. And Revel and you and others from the team, you know, I was just like, this is a super cool bike brand. I need to own a Revel. So I didn't buy the Eddie. I bought the Rascal instead. So that's my long story short, which is really comes back to your story, which is the power of story. You know, I think you talked about that transition from Borealis to Revel and the scrappy days early on, or actually why cycles early on. And I wonder how much you paid attention to these articles out there about you, your actual Adam Miller story, because you kind of began again, humble. You know, you, you began early on as a hobby humble. Then you began again as, you know, maybe with some PTSD and some rough roads of that breakup for the business, <laughs> but you kind of began again re-humbled. Mm-hmm. But you've got a great name in the business. And I think Chris, when he saw you and was like, hey, you want to license this thing and what you're going to do with it, he was like, wow, Adam Miller's going to build a bike on my platform. Yeah. Take us, after I geeked out quite a bit about my journey to, to Revel, but more of the story of you and Revel. Yeah. No. And I, and I love hearing those stories and hearing people who, you know, kind of why, why they got to the point of buying one of our bikes. Cause I, it, it's always fascinating to me. And, and, um, you know, I, I think now for a, the industry, for a lot of people, you know, people kind of say mountain bikes are the new golf. It, it's becoming so popular as, as a hobby. Um, and half of the fun of mountain bikes or of any bike is the tech side is like what you did. It's pulling your bike apart and mm-hmm. geeking out and figuring out how the parts work and put it back together and buying custom, you know, you know, a, a new fork or new wheels or whatever it might be, you know, half the fun is the product too. And so it's, it's kind of neat, you know, it's both, yeah. it, it, it's a, it's a hobby on a lot of levels. So, yeah. So, so really, so back into 2015, I started working on this stuff, 2016, I incorporated, I was, I was living in Utah still. Um, I didn't really like Utah. I, I, I didn't find a good, it, it just didn't jive with me. I lived in Colorado for quite a while. So in 2016, I started thinking, Hey, my business is basically me and, and one other person Then I hired another person actually with the first guy I ever hired at 
my first company, Borealis. He started working for me at, at the time, Y Cycles in 2016. And that was really cool. Greg, he's, he's a great guy. And so in 2016, I thought, all right, before this business grows, because I think it's going to grow, I want to move to a place and establish the business in a place where I want to be. And I'd always wanted to go to a small Colorado mountain town. Mm-hmm. And um, I did this ski race with a friend of mine. We, we did a Grand Traverse. So it's a ski race from Crested Butte to Aspen. And it's overnight. And it's it took like 12 hours. And you bring all your food. And, you know, it's all freezing cold and dark and all this stuff. And it's this really cool, fascinating, magical experience. And I'm not very good at ski racing, but it was just a neat thing to do. And so you finish in Aspen in the morning. And so then we had to drive from Aspen back to Crested Butte. And so we drove to this little town called Carbondale and stopped for coffee on the way. And as we were driving through this little town called Carbondale, I thought, you know what, that's where I'm going to put my business. So I got back to Utah and basically did the whole move myself. I, I sold my house. I lived in my warehouse that I was renting for Y Cycles and Revel at the time in Utah for a couple months. I took 12 trips with my Sprinter van and trailer to Carbondale, Colorado. I found a small place to rent here. I, I lived in my van for about two months up on uh, Prince Creek Road. They used to have free camping up up there back in the day, five whole years ago. Back in the day. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, I feel like I've aged a little bit since, since then. Um, uh, I was able to find find a house to buy here in Carbondale. And so then it was me and two employees. We were, we were getting things started. The development of Revel was underway. I'd hired a couple of contractors, you know, designers, engineers to, to help me out. Um, I was going to China a, a bunch to work with our manufacturer. And I was getting things set up in, in Carbondale. Um, but I was really cautious of bringing on investors and partners and borrowing money and all that stuff because I'd had a tough experience with, with my first business. So I decided to, you know, really wait as long as I could at each step of the way before raising more money. So I kind of put my whole chunk of change that I'd gotten from my previous business in. I bought a house that I could get a, you know, home equity line of credit because that's kind of the cheapest way to borrow working capital at a small scale. You can get 80% of your home home value. That first house I bought here in Carbondale, I had, I think the first five Revel employees all lived with me at that house, including, you know, a couple people living in their vans out back and then coming in to use, use the showers and, and uh, washer and dryer and stuff like that. But we did that to you know, split the mortgage basically and, and, and save money. Everybody took a pay cut from their previous job to come, come work at Y and Revel. Um, cause they believed in what we were trying to do. And it was, you know, really, really cool that the passion that we had and, and still have, you know, on a, on a different scale now is, is super inspiring. So, uh, you know, we were living together. I was traveling to China. I, I, we were just trying to save every dollar. My, my plan was we don't try to skimp on anything to do with the product. Every single dollar we have goes into creating the best product, everything else, you know, for the most part, all of us were in our, in our twenties and you know, who cares? Yeah. Uh, we can use recycled chairs that we found in the dumpster for our offices and cardboard boxes instead of trash cans. And, um, I mean, literally super scrappy, super, super scrappy. Uh, I have a few pretty vivid memories of going to, going to China. I took out seven different credit cards early on to get the like, you know, hundred thousand dollar airline mile bonus thing. Um, so I could use those miles to travel to China to visit our manufacturers. And then, uh, I have one memory I w- went to one of our factories is located in a few hours outside of Beijing. It gets pretty cold in the winter there. And I, and I went in January once and I didn't want to pay for a hotel because even, you know, the hotels were, you know, cost money. And I was used to camping in the dirt for, you know, bike races. Like I, I pretty, you know, I'm pretty flexible at that sort of a thing. So I stayed in the um, factory dorm rooms and the, the heat was out. So they told me that ahead of time and said, you know, you're crazy. You can stay in the dorm rooms, but just stay in a hotel. And I said, no, I'll stay in the dorm rooms. And so I brought my sleeping bag, you know, there and it was like 
it was like zero degrees Fahrenheit at, at you know at night and there was no heat and so I was in there you know sleeping on this couch in my sleeping bag and and I, I had a few moments where I was just thinking what what have I gotten gotten myself wow. into I'm yeah. shivering over here across the world in China and and uh, but now I look back on all that and and it's an absolute absolute blast so so then we. You know, we were selling the Y-Cycles products. The titanium bikes were going quite well. That was a good way to kind of, you know, basically every dollar we made off that went right into the development of the Rebel products. That was a good way I could kind of wait, you know, longer before bringing on other investment partners. And so we were selling the Y-Cycles products, developing more of those. Um, that was going really well. We were getting ready to launch Revel um, in, uh, in 2018. We actually thought we were going to launch in 2018. We ran into some hiccups with, you know, as we got into mass production. And so we kept on kind of delaying and delaying. And 2018 was a pretty tough year because we were tight on money. And so, you know, every sale of a Y-Cycles bike, we used that to help fund all the development of this other stuff. And I kept on thinking we were about ready to launch the brand. We had, you know, ramped up on, on inventory, started bringing stuff in. And then we had some delays and, and we really, I'm really proud of our whole team for holding strong and saying, we're waiting until we know these bikes are dialed and amazing before we publicly launch them. So we publicly launched the brand on March 1 of 2019. And that was with both the rail and the rascal. And we, were, we went to a trade show in Sedona. We rented an Airbnb with like two rooms and we had, you know, 10 of us there. So I was sleeping on the floor, um, uh, it, when it comes to like scrappy stories, I have like a, uh, I've, I'm I've, 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 I've tons of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, You've gone through a lot to build this, Adam. Oh, uh, it's, it's fun. I mean, it's really fun at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And, and we knew we were making bikes that we wanted. It was, it was, that was a huge motivating factor. So, Sedona Bike Fest, that's where we decided to launch the brand. We'd sent one bike out to uh, Pink Bike, which is the biggest online media house for, for bikes. They get, you know, millions of page views a day. And I was so, so nervous. I mean, I, I didn't sleep well for months leading up to this launch because I put everything into it. You know, this if, basically if this launch of the products, uh, I was maybe kind of pessimistic. If it didn't go well, I was going to have to go to law school or, or go, you know, hide out under a bridge somewhere or something. I was like, man, what do I do? Cause I got to make bikes. Like I'm spoiled. I've owned my own business. I've been my own boss. You know, I get to wear flip-flops to work. I get to make, make bikes. I cannot do anything else. This is, you know, the ultimate dream. This, this needs to work out. Uh, and so March one, we're setting up at the trade show, getting everything ready to show these bikes off publicly the, the, the next day in Arizona where people can come and try them out. And there's a bunch of members of, you know, magazines, a bunch of bike shop owners, all these people there. And, and, and uh, so they're going to get to see the bikes in person. So Pink Bike posted their first review of the Rebel Rail the, the day before. And we were setting up and I got someone pinged me on my phone and said, hey, the review is live. And th those reviews have the power to make or break a company. Yeah. If it's a good review, you're golden. If it's a bad review, you know, pack up and go home because customers aren't going to buy, aren't going to buy your products. So <laughs> I, I saw this on my phone and I, and I kind of went and found this, found this tree in the corner and sat under this tree kind of all curled up and I was shaking. I was so nervous. And I, and I started reading this, this review and, and it was phenomenal. It was the best review I've ever read on, on pink bike for a bike. I mean, they're, they're kind of notorious for being really harsh and really good critics and really honest reviews of products. And this review was basically like, Hey, this bike is absolutely amazing. And this small, small team out of a small town in Colorado created this bicycle that is on par with all these big brands. And as I was reading this article, it was like this, you know, relief came over me and, and, and excitement. And, and that was, that was the ticket. I mean, things just, 
took off from there. And it was very reminiscent of my first company, although this time I actually had an office and we had a team and we had inventory systems and we had a website that worked and we had credit card processing and we had a business phone number that wasn't my personal cell phone number. So we kind of had all these things in place. And the next day at the trade show, it's kind of funny at 9am, the doors open and, and everyone runs up to the these different booths to grab a bicycle to try out and everyone has their, you know, they want to try a Yeti or a Pivot or whatever other brand. And all, you know, all these people literally sprint to go get in line so they can get their first choice of a bike. And so the first morning, you know, Friday at 9am, we had a couple people had seen the pink bike article and they, they ran up to ride our bikes, but we still had, you know, 15 bikes sitting there. Everyone was super happy. The feedback was phenomenal. We were all just buzzing. The next day, Saturday at 9am, we had a line of, you know, 30 people at, uh. at, at 901 and all the bikes gone. The next day was the same thing. Word got out. We took bets as a company that night on, on when we'd sell the first bike. And we all thought it'd be, you know, by Monday or Tuesday. And it happened like 30 minutes after, you know, yeah, like Friday morning. It's actually a guy in Australia. Australia was the first person to buy a bike from us. And then, wow. um, and then it, it, it just took off and it was the greatest, greatest thing ever. Can I read uh, a line from the first impressions from that pink bike article? I'm a please do. Uh, this is further down the article. First impressions. Uh, it says, "quote A lot of times, a good-looking bike doesn't translate into a good ride, but with the rail, this is not the case. The bike's performance, both up and down, is simply incredible. A lot of people are launching bike brands, and it's refreshing to see one where the founders, this is Adam, did their homework and got it right. Well done." So that had to be incredible. I mean, to put, to be down the road, you've been down. So that's why I think, you know, listeners kind of paying attention to every word here. We've gone through a lot of detail. There's so much detail to cover an Adam's story from bike tech to his story of Scrappy and all the things he's been through this, you know, Borealis breakup and what that did to him personally. But, you know, I think it really sets you up to do things the right way. Like you got into the bike business because one, you're passionate about it, but two, because you wanted to build something that you would actually ride yourself, which is why I bought a Revel bike. Because if I <laughs> want to buy from someone, I want to buy from someone who builds a bike they want to they want to ride themselves. And that kind of review from Pink Bike You Ride is is phenomenal. And to be in Sedona, this, this bike fest, it's like the place, one of the places you want to launch if you're going to launch something somewhere, right? Like this is a, this is a good spot. Mm-hmm. And to kind of go in humble and thinking, okay, not so much. And the next day, 30 and the next day more, and then get your first sale. Like I can only imagine what those days were like for you guys. It was such a, such, such a, a buzz. I mean, I, I don't, there's not quite words to describe it. It was, you know, for me, it was like eight years of, of business. You know, if I include all the eBay stuff, you know, 15 years or something of, of, yeah. you know, wanting to make bikes and make bike stuff and get people excited on the products that we're making. And I'd, you know, been to China at that time, maybe 20 times. Now it's more like 27, although nothing for the last few years to, you know, work with our partners to manufacture this, the, 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 this bike. And, and I knew I liked it, but I was hoping everybody else would too. And so, yeah, those few days at Sedona Fest launching the brand were just, just unbelievable. And then, you know, it's the kind of thing where we got back and there, there was no rest and there, and there hasn't been mm. since then. I mean, yeah. we, especially, you know, those days it's, Hey, we're getting bikes out the door and then we're all staying late. We had a whole lot of pizza parties at night to, to, you know, assemble bikes in our facility in Colorado and, and ship them out. We were getting, you know, international distributors wanting to sell the bikes. Uh, 
it, it was just everything I could have hoped for and a whole lot more. And I made you know some similar mistakes as I did with my first company where I, we sold out right away. I, we didn't have enough inventory in stock. I was almost, I, I think I was too scrappy in, in a lot of senses in terms of mm-hmm. you know having enough people at the company, having enough help, having, you know, we were using QuickBooks for like $15 a month. That wasn't cutting it from an inventory control standpoint. Um, so we pretty quickly got right into defense mode to, to sort of figure all that stuff out. I, I brought on financing. I brought on some more equity partners, um, you know, some friends. My best friend from high school um, from Alaska was was our first investor. Actually, before we even launched the brand, he, he put in a, a chunk of money and um, that helped us, you know, fund our first round of inventory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of Quickly, it was in defense mode, raising money, figuring out how to have a real business. We we moved to two different facilities that first year, a third facility the next year. Now we're we're in our fourth facility. Then we added on another building, so it's all kind of one facility here. But um, all still in Carbondale. Uh, all still in Carbondale, but we're we're bursting at the seams here. We're looking for another a bigger warehouse. We're setting up a facility in Taiwan right now um, to have a, a international distribution center um, in. Uh, in kind of the, the, the bike central uh, bike manufacturing location in the world. We have 25 employees now here in, in Carbondale, three people in Taiwan. And it's just, I mean, it's been taken off like like crazy. We've introduced several new models in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, the supply chain stuff, we could talk for all sorts of time about all, about all that. <laughs> I was going to um, say, it's a great time to launch a bike brand. 2019, <laughs> like amazing year, uh, 2020. Everybody has those challenges and I'm not saying they don't matter, but like, yeah, this, the bike industry in particular, like, I think I saw somebody who was like, I ordered my Santa Cruz. I'm like, one, why'd you buy a Santa Cruz? Uh, <laughs> and two, he's like, yeah, it'll be here next year. I'm like, uh, that's a shame. Cause like, that's like next year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> yeah. People got really used to waiting a long time for bikes. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers, and it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily standups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and, of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at ChangeLog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. And the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now, we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out. Get started for free with a 14-day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. And by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST 
making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to SignalWire.com slash video, mention Founders Talk and get an extra 5,000 video minutes. Again, SignalWire.com slash video and mention Founders Talk. I listened to the podcast you did with Jeff and his team at Worldwide. And one thing in particular I took away from that call was their question about innovation in bikes. And they're pessimistic on bike tech. And But your response was not exactly bike tech. It was manufacturing efficiencies. It was supply chain efficiencies, which I think in a lot of ways, the whole entire world had to sort of grow up quickly on how we move things around the world and distribute products to people, make them happy and do what we do and do we love. But in particular, I think bikes... And the bike brand industry had to really grow up because we never really had those problems. It was pretty easy to get things from Taiwan to the U.S. and move things around. You know, getting carbon fiber to manufacture was pretty easy. Like there was it was a pretty free flowing system. And then we hit a bunch of bottlenecks, which you've experienced personally. And uh, I don't know if this contributes to it, but I wanted to and I'll, I'll tell you more about wanted to. I wanted to buy a rail 29er. But the the wait was two months, and I want to ride this summer, so I I paused my order. Got wheels still yet, so don't worry. But I paused my Rail 29 order because I couldn't wait until late August because I wanted it in the summertime, and I'm not going to be doing something later this August where I want to ride that bike. So I live in Houston. It's mainly trails, not hills. We got Spider Mountain. I go to Colorado. We go over to Angel Fire and different places, and that's where I take a longer travel bike, but I, the bike won't be here before then. The long story short is is I imagine you've had to go down these roads of like, how do we get things to make bikes and make people happy? Like I built this thing, 2019 we launched, everybody loves it, everybody wants it, and then 2020. So I was lucky enough to order my bike, I believe, November or December of 2019. My rascal. Great timing. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. <laughs> and then I, I got it in January, and I, didn't, I don't think I had time to build it because we just had uh, my youngest son, Mike. Uh, he was born in 20, 2020. 2020. Yeah, I, I almost said 2010. I'm like, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> it was December 10th, 2020. And so it was like a unique time frame for all of us to know December 10th, 2019. Come on, Adam. You got me all messed up here on my years here and stuff. There we Long go. Long story short, I couldn't build my bike right away. I, I ordered it, got the frame. It's sitting there and it's like just staring at me. I couldn't build it until around February, March when I finally had some time. But let's go back to you. Pandemic, supply chain issues, manufacturing issues. What exactly happened in the bike world to kind of cause a slowdown? Yeah, you got a bike at the right time. I'm glad. I'm glad that worked <laughs> yeah. out. Um, similar to my to my answer with Jeff is, you know, it's probably just a sign of 
the times are sign of what we're dealing with is so much of our focus is on supply chain and less so on the fun stuff on the bikes. And luckily we have a ton of products in the works and we have some a fantastic team of engineers here. And, and so we have some really, really neat stuff coming down the pipeline, but we've put so much effort into the supply chain thing. And I feel like everyone, you know, almost hates that word. Now we've been, you know, we've been hearing it way too much recently before the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Most people didn't know what supply chain was because who cares stuff, all stuff got here and Amazon was two day shipping, you know, faster if you live in a city you know we, we live in the mountains you can still get stuff in two days it's amazing so we were very lucky with our timing we launched in 2019 we had a whole year of kind of normal stuff before the pandemic hit and and in the bike world that meant we could order our our either our frames that we design and have manufactured and, and we could get those in about 45 or 60 days you know if, if it was 70 days we were upset we had to have a hard talk with our manufacturer that they took too long you know sometimes it was 90 days and that was a big deal you know Oh my God, a 30 day delay. That's, that's a big problem. Um, all the other parts, you know, derailleurs, tires, wheels, all that stuff. Those were all 30 to 60 day lead times. So we could, we could say, Oh, demand's creeping up. Let's order some more stuff. And in a month or two, we'll have it here and, and, and life's good. So we didn't need to a very flexible process. It was super flexible, yeah. but at the time it did seem flexible. It was just normal. That's just how it was. And so perspective really is everything. And the bike industry is also pretty small and it's pretty new. Mountain bikes weren't invented that long ago. Um, you know, we're not like the tech industry. We're not even like the golf industry or the ski industry. We're small. And so a lot of brands just aren't that sophisticated because we didn't we didn't need to be even a lot of these, you know, a lot of our competitors who have been in business for 30 or 40 years. They didn't need to have all these crazy systems in place because it was a small industry and pretty stable manufacturing. So of course the, you know, the lockdown happened. I, I had been in China very recently before that at our manufacturer and, and, um, looking back, I probably should have been there every, you know, I came back and, and, uh, definitely got pretty sick right away. And that made me realize, um, realized COVID was a very real thing. I was, I was, I was hit pretty hard by it. I, I had COVID, um, early on the lockdowns happened uh, early on. Yeah. Um, and I was able to get a test, which at the time it was crazy, you know, and that was, you know, it was in early, early March, 2020 when everybody, a lot of fear. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of fear. No one quite knew what was going to happen. Um, you know, a few days into me having COVID, we shut the office down and everything was locked down. Everyone was working from home and our sales plummeted. I mean, everything tanked. We had, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of sales on open order. You know, dealers had put these orders in, they were going to get delivered in the next few weeks. And, you know, even at that time, our business was much more stable and, you know, than it was previously, but we rely on those open orders to sort of plan, you know, how the next few weeks are, we're, we're going to look. And everything got canceled within a matter of a couple of days. I mean, we went from hundreds of thousands of dollars planned on coming in to, to nothing. And, our business was good, but we were still, we we're only a year old or a year old publicly um, for Revel at that point. We didn't have tons of extra cash in the bank and, and things like that. Um, we were, you know, staying in hotels in China at that point, not sleeping in the dorm rooms, but, yeah. but we weren't staying in nice hotels. Um, <laughs> so, so I had COVID, I was in bed. I mean, I could barely walk for a few days. I was so sick and I, we came up with two different financial plans basically that in the next two weeks if if things you know if this happens we're going to lay off you know 10 people if this happens we're going to lay off seven people and that was horrible it was a, it was a horrible 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 experience to think about that the business is so well everyone loved these bikes and then this pandemic thing happened and we were we were going to be in trouble luckily i think i was so sick i couldn't think about all that stuff and and about a week later as i was getting getting healthier a couple orders started trickling back in the next few days a few more orders trickled in and and 
and we never had to take any action as far as laying anybody off or, or anything anything like that or orders trickled in That's awesome. people realized that hey you can still ride bikes you can still go outside during the pandemic and so yeah fairly quickly it turned into okay we're, rush. we're gonna be just fine yeah <laughs> a lot of people want to buy bikes uh so i you know guess that one totally wrong early on and so 2020 was just a great great year and i felt very lucky you know a lot of other businesses were affected by covid and and didn't and it lasted a lot longer than it than a few weeks like it like it did for us so um, i felt incredibly fortunate and and because of that i wanted to really do a good job and take advantage of, a, of our you know good situation as a business with really high really high demand um and so 2020 was a pretty great you know until about fall 2020 and all the inventory we had or the inventory that was being made you know started to we we got that stuff out the door and lead time started creeping up they went from 30 or 60 days to, to 90 days i, I remember when derailleurs and stuff that those lead times went to like 120 days and we all freaked out and thought oh my god how are we going to run our business with four month lead times for these parts that's just that's just wild mm. and in the course of the next year and, and even now a lot of those lead times are between 500 and 700 days to get to get parts which is just crazy we're, we're placing orders out through 2025 for certain parts right now and so kind of zooming out we had to figure out how to run a business and make a plan and figure out what we we're going to sell and order all this stuff i mean order products that haven't even been designed yet in some cases we had to grow up really 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 quick and so i i think as a business we grew up by you know 10 years in the course of yeah of a year or two and you've launched two different new products in this pandemic right you got the rover I think that was an independent, right? Or was it? Yep. Okay. I'm trying to keep my memory straight. And then obviously your Ranger, which is the, you know, the shortest travel, more of a XC bike. Yep. Cross country bike. And these are both launched in the pandemic. How did that happen? Like how did launching new products happen? Did you just have a already, you had an inventory or what? Yeah, we couldn't go to our manufacturers. So before the pandemic, you know, as we're making stuff, I just fly over there and, you know, we maybe fly over with one of our engineers or, or, or whatever and just sit there and work with the factory. It's a collaborative effort to make this stuff. And we couldn't do that with the pandemic. So we got on a bunch of, you know, WeChat phone calls, Skype phone calls and did video talks to go through all this stuff. But it was way, way slower and it was frustrating. And, you know, for all the stresses that we had here in the U.S. with the pandemic and shutdowns in Vietnam and China and Taiwan, it was way worse. And it's still way, way worse. I mean, maybe worse isn't the right word, depending on how you, how you feel about everything, but way more strict, I should say. Yeah. There weren't bars opening up. There weren't, you know, there were strict everything. You know, a lot of factories shut down completely or they shut down, but they kept working. So people were sleeping in these factories and, you know, stuff that here we might think is awful for a lot of those places. People were happy to still even be able to work so that they could, you know, have, have money. It's just the different cultures. And I admire our factories kind of perseverance through these crazy you know very strict government things and protocols these factories kept kept on working and kept on producing products at of course a much slower rate but they mm. they dealt with a lot of adversity a lot a lot more than we did here in the u.s for the most part so we launched the the rover a gravel bike uh, the ranger a little bit before that as a short travel bike and our rail 29 is kind of is more recent but kind of in the pandemic depending on which government depending on your perspective <laughs> yeah it's not really post pandemic it's more like endemic now or what, what is it like it's it's whatever is post pandemic yeah. like it's still out there around the world but now it's just the way of life the way of life. Yeah. yeah the way of, I don't know what the transitional word is there for that, but I feel like it's still pandemic, but it's it's like this transitional period between 
craziness, lockdown, uncertainty to awareness, yeah, understanding and treatment, you know, possible treatment. And there's a lot less people dying of it. There's still a lot of, a lot of negative cases out there. We've had friends that have passed away as part of COVID mm, and sorry to hear a lot that. of tragedy. And I'm not diminishing that by any means, but we're definitely in this in this phase where it's more awareness and more knowledge about how to treat it than it was before, which before it was a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt we're going through. It's a, it's a way of life now. It's just yeah. something we're all accepting now. Um, and you're exactly right. There's all, there's all sorts of horrible tragedy that came from it. And now it's sort of seen as normal. So we don't want to diminish that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find really interesting and, and what we've, you know, are still learning a lot about and navigating is that every, every government in every country is very different. And we're, we're 25 people here in a small town in Colorado, but that's very different. You know, we, we manufacture in multiple different countries. Raw material comes from even more countries that then goes to our manufacturers. And then we sell in a lot of different countries. So, you know, especially in, in Asia, they're still very, very strict, mm-hmm. um, especially in China. You know, Vietnam just opened up more recently. Taiwan is getting better. It's a three-day quarantine for certain places instead of 14. China's still at a 28-day quarantine, so we can't go visit our manufacturers there. So launching these products has taken an incredible amount of, I'd say, patience for one, but just trying to learn how to communicate and you know, try to be empathetic and keep in mind that, you know, these are our partners. We're all on the same team. We all want to get these products out there. And sometimes, you know, these crazy health challenges or political challenges are, are just going to get in the way. Yeah. And, and similarly with, with selling products and now Europe's much more normal, but you know, 2020 or in early 21, certain distributors would say, Oh, we can't take those bikes because we can't even, you know, leave our houses to go to the office to unload the shipping container or, or, or whatever it might be. And then two weeks later, things were opened up again. And it's just a roller coaster of everything. So um, if it weren't for the pandemic, I think we would have launched about four new models and had much faster delivery dates. Um, so on one hand, we were very lucky. Demand was super high, but the supply chain for the whole world for all products is bad. But for the bike industry, it was really, really, really bad because I think the systems just weren't in place. So how are things now then? So now that we're June... 2022, you know, a couple years past all this, things have to be leveling out to some degree. Is it still 90, 100, 500 day out for derailers in certain parts? Like what's the status of the supply chain in the bike world? It's it's similar to COVID where it's still there and we're just learning to, to deal with it, I'd say. It's still really bad. Certain factories are see we're seeing some improvements. You know, back in November, December, we we thought everything would be better by January and or February and shipping costs would come down and lead times would be more consistent. And here we are in June and, and it's it's probably gotten a little worse since even, you know, last fall Q3, Q4 of 2021. Mm. I think it is going to get better in Q3, Q4, but every time I've said, I think it's going to get better, I've, I've been totally wrong. So <laughs> we, we, we are seeing- Just say it's going to get worse. Just say it's going to get That way yeah, it gets better. Th- there you go. It's going to get way worse. Now, now I'll be surprised. This is just a hobby. Yeah, <laughs> no one will like this thing. You're onto something. You're, yeah, I, I haven't figured either of those things yeah. out. I, no one will like this <laughs> suspension platform. We're just a small boutique yeah. brand. Not true. <laughs> you're, you're exactly true. right. I'm going to start questioning everything. I haven't told you this yet, but a small prediction behind the scenes, for me at least, is I, I think, and maybe this isn't what you're trying to do, but my perspective might be different than yours because... I'm not as steeped in the bike industry as you are, but I think that, you know, the bikes you build go toe to toe, if not better than the Yeti brand bicycles, like the SB150, SB130. Like I think the rail, the rascal, they compete very well with those. Yeah. I just think that like 
my prediction for Revel would be as big or bigger than Yeti. And you're the unknown, amazing brand in bikes. And I think you're, you're going to be just as big or better. I'm honored to hear that. I mean, the fact that, you know, even a couple of years ago, we were being spoken about in the same sentence as, you know, Yeti and Santa Cruz and Specialized. I was, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's just, you know, we're on the same level as those brands. And, I, and I'm honored because there's a lot of, I mean, Yeti, all these companies make fantastic bikes. And, and the fact that, you know, we're up there with them is really, is really great. And, and we have a lot of neat, really neat products in the works and some pretty unique manufacturing techniques and some different materials and some stuff that, you know, not all of it's going to pan out. Some of it is going to pan out. And, and, and my goal is to be the best mountain bike brand out there. That doesn't necessarily mean the biggest, but I want to be the best. And, and, and I think we're on the right track to get there. I, I, I truly believe our, our team has, has the ability to make some pretty, pretty cool stuff and keep, and keep on doing it. Well, it seems so. Everybody I speak to Revel, they're all passionate about your business and your brand and what you're doing. Uh, I've never met anybody unhappy by any means. <laughs> I, I'm curious. So you you made it through the pandemic without laying anybody off, right? Is that that's true? Like as your we, we actually we hired a bunch more people. <laughs> hired a bunch more people, and I think the unknown known unknown thing is like the bike world blew up in terms of a good thing uh, during the pandemic. Everybody's like, you know, if all I can do is go outside, I might as well ride a bike. And so like bikes were sold out everywhere you know, all these different things. And so now I feel like the industry got hot as a result of the pandemic, but now the love for those, like that was one thing I could see, like we're in the tech business, you know, you saw the Zoom stock go way up and you saw, you know, Tesla stock go way up and, you know, the stock market in some ways is a, you know, a factor of how well the business is going, et cetera. A lot of tech stocks, even Bitcoin went to $60,000 per Bitcoin. All these things blew up during the pandemic and went up. And then they sort of came back down to norms again. You know, you see square trading at lower than $100. For example, Tesla, I think, is like 600 or maybe 800 bucks per share in comparison to where they were. You know, but I think the fire that was stoked for the bike world is still there. The passion is still there. Can you speak to, like, you know, maybe the the blessing in disguise, I suppose, for the bike world that, you know, it was already on track to be be popular, but the pandemic sort of stoked it. And it seems like the desire and passion for the for bikes hasn't changed as a result of going back to normal. Totally. The pandemic soaked it like crazy. Um, the way I see it and it seems to be kind of a, a agreed upon mentality is the pandemic really, really stoked, especially the lower end market. So maybe bikes under $2,000, you know, $500 bikes at, you know, Costco and stuff, especially were just flying off the shelves because people didn't want to take subways in New York city. They wanted to pedal their bike. So a lot of people, you know, bought bikes for transportation or for to go pedal around and, 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 you know, in the park with their families because they couldn't go to the movie theater, you know, all that stuff's great. There was certainly a higher demand as well for the high end, you know, super enthusiast crowd that we play in. But a lot of that was growing already that that's relatively small but what we've seen is you know a lot of people got into biking that maybe they bought a fifteen hundred dollar you know mountain bike at rei to try it out during the pandemic and then maybe not everybody is sticking with it certainly certainly not everybody's sticking with it but a lot of people got bit just like all just like you bought a two thousand dollar aluminum bike and then you know you a year or two later you said i I like this i'm going to get a rebel we're, we're seeing a lot of that. So I think at the higher end of the market, um, there's a little bit of a lag time of, of that of that growth level. 
And, you know, it's going to take a few years to shake out because a lot of brands and retailers probably overordered too much inventory because they purely looked at these growth rates that were, you know, 60 or 80 or 200 percent, you know, and, and no one should quite expect that to yeah. continue as as, you know, bars and movie theaters and air, airlines and international travel open back up. So so those growth rates, I don't believe, are going to continue. But I think, you know, it, I don't know the exact stat, but let's just say it was something like there's 20 million new users in the mountain bike space. Well, even if. 10% of them decide to stick with the spore and, and, you know, get bit by, by the bug. Like, you know, what happened to so many of us, that's a big bump up yeah. and more, more users. So I, I have a lot of optimism for the, for the future. I think biking is uh, probably one of the best forms of exercise, honestly. Like I, I enjoy my kettlebell workouts, but I do those so I can bike better and not so I can kettlebell better. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the reason I kettlebell is to be in shape, but it's so I could be in shape to shred. Totally. I, I, I kind of joke like I, I hate exercise. I do not like exercise. I don't exercise, but I ride my bike a lot. And so it's fun yeah. and it happens to be exercise, which is a pretty, pretty lucky combination. <laughs> can we um, can we rewind a little bit back to maybe Jeff Cayley and worldwide and distribution? Yeah. I have an assumption. I think, you know, they played a good role in it because that's how I learned about the Rebel brand and mm-hmm. the Rascal and how I toiled over. Should I go real long travel? Should I go short travel? And honestly, my trails are around here or more. I bought the bike. I thought I'd ride more around here, uh, which I've taken it to a downhill park over to spider mountain in burn it. It performed amazingly. So great job there, but talk to me about the distribution aspect. So when you launched, obviously, you know, you have a known name, it's a new bike brand, but how did you go from being unknown to being known? That pink bike article was huge that, that really spread the word on, you know, literally on day one. And then we, we actually, I thought, again, I'm, I'm pretty bad at predictions. I'm starting to find out. We, we thought we were going to be mostly direct to consumer, you know, online sales. We built our website for like $300. So it wasn't, it wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, so maybe that had something to do with it. But I thought we we're going to be mainly online sales. We wanted to partner with five or 10 kind of key retailers to have some bikes in some showrooms across the country. Um, and and I, again, I couldn't have really been more wrong. We launched and we got a ton of demand. Um, and some was direct consumer, but a lot of it was bike shops. Um, we really spoke to kind of that enthusiast, you know, high end uh, bike shop market. So shops that were carrying maybe Santa Cruz or Specialized or, or Yeti or, or um, some of our competitors at the time, I didn't even think they were competitors. I thought we were, you know, much, much smaller. Uh, a lot of those shops said, this is a perfect brand for us. We, we want to take you on. So within a matter of weeks, we brought on a lot more retailers. I think now we have 121 bike shops in the United States that sell our bikes and then like 38 in different countries, as well as some distributors. Uh, I think we have about 17 distributors in, in 17 different countries. But the Worldwide Cycler, guys, the Worldwide Cycler is a fantastic, you know, amazing, best of the best uh, online and brick and mortar retailer. I think they have three or four locations now across the country and they do a ton of online business. And I got a call, one of the better calls I've ever gotten. It was a few days after we launched, we were back in Carbondale at the office and I got a call from from Jeff Cayley, who was uh, the founder of Worldwide. And he started the business when he was you know 20 years old or 19 or something and just created the best bike retailer in, in the world, I'd say. And he called me and said, you know, saw your bikes. They look great. You know, can we sell them? And it was another one of those things where I, I don't know if I actually did put the phone on, on mute or I just waited till I hung <laughs> up, but I was jumping up and down nice. when that phone call ended of, oh my God, Jeff Cayley called me and they want, you know, Worldwide wants to sell our bikes. You know, this is, this is the best thing we could hope for. And they made a few videos and they have a great YouTube presence and, and really good uh, reach. 
and and that was another big turning point they you know they really got the word out to, to you and to so many other people uh and actually i just a few days ago i got back from, i was on a, a trip in, in uganda in africa that jeff cayley um and i went on with a group of uh, entrepreneurs was 18 entrepreneurs and a uh trip put on by a company called Wayfinders that do kind of this business training, CEO coaching, leadership stuff in unique different places around the world. And so that was a super cool trip. So, so, so I have Jeff to thank for, mm-hmm. for telling me to go on to go on that trip. So. That's awesome. What's left in your story? I know we've talked a lot about by tech, the journey, a little bit of pandemic, supply chain, predictions gone wrong that made you what you are today, etc. <laughs> what else could we cover that really sort of encases your story? There's so much more we can cover, obviously, but what could we cover in the last, say, few minutes here? Yeah, I could talk for hours about, you know, all the bike tech and all that good stuff. I mean, the, the major thing on the business standpoint is about seven or eight months ago, I brought on, um, I did a kind of a restructuring um, and I brought on a family office called NextSpark as my one partner and, and investor in the business. And that's been the, the the best thing possible. You know, I was kind of, we talked a lot about kind of being scrappy early on and, you know, mm-hmm. first employees all sleeping in the same house and all this stuff. And and so I decided after a few years, hey, the, uh, this brain is going to take off. We're, we're, we're doing really well. It's taken off way more than I expected. I don't want to always be playing defense in terms of, you know, for for a lot of things, things I didn't know about, uh, bringing on financing, you know, always talking to the local banks and Wells Fargo and trying to increase the line of credit so we could pay for inventory and all this stuff. I was, I was sick of that. So I said, let's, you know, kind of restructure this business. The initial investors all did very well uh, in the process. And now I have a partner with a ton of business experience um, that's been able to help me a whole lot, um, help with things like uh, setting up a Taiwan entity and Taiwan facility to, to support our international growth um, and then help navigate these supply chain issues, um, you know, bring on plenty of funding to really take advantage. The way I see it is this brand is, is growing like crazy. I don't want anything, you know, whether it's funding, business processes, people, I don't want any of that to, to hold it back. I want to, you know, mm-hmm. keep the, keep this rocket ship going. So um, those guys have been just awesome to work with. And so I feel like now I'm set up really well to grow and scale this business and I can focus on on bikes and business and, and less on the financing and all that fun stuff. And so that, that's been a really good, really good move recently. You said if the pandemic didn't happen, you'd have launched four new products and you launched what, two, three, well, I guess if you include the rims, that's a product too, right? I mean, it's not, not a product. It is a product. Yep. What's left then? Where So if you've got, if you're positioned for growth, then is growth sales, is growth product? Give me a hint into your future. What's the question I like to really ask on this, uh, to be clear about it, is like, what's unknown? What's something super secret or on the horizon that no one knows about or knows little about that you can share? So give us a peek. Mm-hmm. Give us a glimpse. Well, at the risk of running my mouth and saying it and something I, I, I shouldn't, we have a, a couple neat products in the works and I'll say they have to do with different materials and, and more manufacturing in the United States. So I don't know when we're going to be releasing those. We've, we've put a lot of effort into the research part of the research and design department and sort of experimenting with with different materials and processes. You know, we, we launched our line of wheels a few years ago. We have some neat stuff in the works uh, there as well. And those are, you know, made in America, yeah. made out of the first ever fully 
recyclable composite material. Um, so that's a big area of focus is different, different types of manufacturing. So we'll, we'll see what that means. But, uh, you know, as a smaller company, um, we're really trying to remain nimble and creative and, you know, experimental. And, you know, sometimes we try to make something and we realize we waste a bunch of time and money. And sometimes we try to make something and realize we're, we're, we're kind of onto something. So, yeah. um, you know, really focusing on that cutting edge development is, is I think how we're really going to grow our, our brand on, you know, kind of the growth side, a lot of it's supply chain and, and international distribution. Um, of course, product line expansion, that's kind of the, in my mind, the, the easy, really fun part, the global distribution, the bike market's big in, in Europe and Australia and, and, and certain parts of Asia. And so setting up systems for that is how we're really going to be able to grow this brand and make it a world, world-class brand. Yeah. I have some predictions to some degree. Maybe you can laugh in a certain way or nod your head on what I think you might do. So considering your roots with Borealis, I'm not sure if you would go fat bike, but I think with what, maybe, maybe there's a, maybe there's a fat bike in the future. There's, there's still some sales there to be had. And, uh, you know, why not reclaim something you've lost in a way to, to sort of maybe, maybe get them back? I don't know how you how you describe it. Yeah, yeah, I like how you think. <laughs> you know, that's that's a possibility. I think you know, obviously with Y cycles and titanium, you've got the hardtail down. But where Rebel's missing is, I think, a good carbon fiber, super light, phenomenal hardtail would be great. I think in your lineup, I'd be looking forward to that. And then because I have a six year old, who I'm desperately trying to get deeper into, we've got him a nuke proof hardtail nice. and it's a phenomenal bike frame. It's a Cub Scout. It's a, I think a 24 inch wheel Cub Scout, if I recall correctly. Uh, he loves it. But I mean, if, if Revel had a, a kid level, youth level hardtail, I'd buy it. So I'm actually stoked to hear you say that it's an idea we've tossed around. We don't have anything in the works for it right now. Um, cause we're kind of at, at capacity for development, but as we expand, you know, that those are the types of things that are totally in the realm of possibilities. Basically, what I want to do is just kind of make the best products we can within the within each category. So, right. you know, we, we just came out with a gravel bike and we made a big point of we're not just going to make a gravel bike because it's a it's a popular segment of the market. We're going to make it because of the 25 people in this building. I think 15 people ride gravel bikes, you know, multiple times a week because they, they love them. We, we made a titanium gravel bike that got on the cover of Road Bike Action back in 2017. You know, it's in our DNA. We're, we're good at it. We, we like it. We can make something special. We're not just going to make something because there's market share to be had. So, Kind of how I see the future is, you know, a kid's bike would be awesome. I'd, they're underserved, you know, honestly. They're underserved. And, and I think we could do a good job. And that's how we're going to grow the sport. And that's how we're going to, you know, get more riders involved for the long term. And and I, I love mountain biking. And I want to share with people. It's a, it's super fun. And it's a it's a healthy, you know, good, fun activity. Um, yeah. So I think more people should ride bikes. <laughs> there, there's room for expansion in the youth section. And there's room for improvement because... You know, smaller doesn't mean you can't ride, I guess, maybe at 12 speed on there. Just there's different components that maybe not translate to those bike frames. I don't know. I don't build bikes. I don't know to that degree. But, you know, I know when I bought his bike, I had to buy it. It's a new proof. It's an amazing bike, but it was challenging to find a bike for him that had knobby tires and he could shred and all that good stuff. And uh, had, you know, disc brakes, not uh, rim pads or however you describe that component. You know, like mm. that's just not good enough for him and he still his hand isn't big enough to really do all the derailleur stuff so even like the components aren't designed for a small kid's hand mm -hmm. you know there's just different things that just don't come into play so seeing him struggle with trying to shift is uh, is a pain point and he can even barely break because his hand isn't big enough yeah. and the brake lever is not adjustable to like adjust it in like 
a higher end SRAM might be, for example. You know, like I can adjust my lever, why can't he adjust his? So yep. the the frame may not be need that, but the the components that go with it could be served. And that is the future of biking. So if you want to get them in early. Well, I, I, I like the sound of that. I mean, we've tossed around those ideas because it's, you know, we, we like to design stuff that we, you know, that, that you go through all those little details, little details about a brake lever being, you know, the right size for, for someone with different size hands, you know, that might, you know, as you're engineering a bike, might not think about that too much, but the end user is going to, that's going to be the first thing they notice. So trying to have that all encompassing picture of what the end user wants is, is how to make a good product. Yeah. So yeah, I like the sound of that. It was a, a small semi story of more anecdotal feedback. I would say when we first got in the bike, we opened up the box, I put it together it was shipped. The derailleur hanger was was bent, so we did. They didn't get. They didn't give me a spare. So I'd always say ship a spare just in case during shipping, it gets bent. And like obviously, I couldn't unbend it. It's unsafe to ride a bent derailleur hanger. So we had to wait a couple of weeks till the right one got in. So he was super bummed. He could sit on it, but he couldn't ride it. So that was a major bummer. And then two weeks later, when I finally got here and I can, you know, put the derailleur hanger on, swap it all out. His hand was, you know, like I said, with the brake lever and the shifter. That was challenging for him. So like I was like trying to soften the moment so that he wasn't discouraged because he he wants to be like dad. Everything I do, he thinks is cool and I love that. <laughs> it's awesome. So he loves my Revel Rascal. He he loves it's a T one thousand color, so there you go. He loves that. We call it the silver bullet, based upon Bob Seeger, of course, you know, and the silver bullet band. Yep. <laughs> um and he loves it. So I mean just just people who could pay attention to that youth because they're gonna grow up. Mm-hmm. They're gonna grow into a larger bike and they're gonna keep loving your brand. And I think there's no brand. Specialized has some good bikes in that area, but even then, like like he had a rip rock, et cetera. I think there's some room for improvement there on the uh the youth level of things. Yeah. We'll add it to our list. We have a big old big old list of development projects. So it'll it'll go on there for sure. Well, Adam, anything left unsaid, anything, any questions I didn't ask, anything we didn't talk about that you're like, you know what? I really wish I could say this one more thing. Is there one more thing for you? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of it and talked to, you know, a lot about the business side of things too. I would just say if anybody's listening and they're, they're interested, you know, re- reach out. We're, we're based in Carbondale, Colorado. It's about half an hour down the road from Aspen. So, you know, if you're, if you're in town, you can come demo a bike here and try them out i'll, I'll give you the, the tour of our facility that hopefully we're moving into a bigger one at, at some point soon here too but no at the end of the day bikes are super fun I, i'm really glad to be able to you know share a fun product with with people and you know we're just getting started so i think there's a whole lot more fun to be had revelbikes.com check it out adam miller thank you so much for your journey as a founder as an entrepreneur and you know the scrappiness you were willing to put in to build a bike brand i love i really appreciate that because I get to go and shred on your bike. And that's my fun. That's my outlet. When I'm not hanging with my family, we're not in the pool and doing our fun thing. You know, even with my kid on the weekends, we're we're uh, we're riding. And my youngest, two year old, he loves it too. Like he's got a little bike, and he'll eventually have a bigger bike. But you know, we're a biking family, so I appreciate the journey you've gone on to enable my family to enjoy fun times. So thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I'm really glad you're enjoying the bikes, and I look forward to getting your whole family on on Rebels at some point. Thank you, Adam. Awesome. Thanks so much. That's it. This show's done. Thanks for tuning in. Do me a favor. If you enjoyed this show, let me know in the comments. The link is in the show notes. I'm truly curious because this story with Adam is different than most other shows we've done here on Founders Talk. I'm such a big fan of Adam's and what he's done with Rebel Bikes. Obviously, I own one of their bikes. I'm an even bigger fan. And hey, maybe if you're into mountain biking or you're getting into mountain biking and you haven't heard of Rebel Bikes, now you do. 
Check them out, revelbikes.com. Yeah, again, I want to hear from you. Let me know in the comments. The link is in the show notes. Big thanks again to our friends and our partners at Fastly. Our pods are fast globally to download because Fastly is fast globally. Check them out at fastly.com. And also to Breakmaster Cylinder, our beats are banging because BMC makes banging beats, and we love them. Of course, last but not least, thank you to you for listening to the show all the way to the very end. I really appreciate everyone around this world listening to our shows, listening to this show. If you haven't yet, subscribe at founderstalk.fm. That's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next week.